The Fantasy Animation Podcast is brought to you by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. If you like what you hear and want to give us a star rating, then you can do so by visiting Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or you can follow us on Podbean. Whatever you choose, give us a rating and watch us fly up the rankings. For now, enjoy the show. To the bridge of Cosmodrome. Hello listeners and welcome back to the Fantasy Animation Podcast from another week. Uh, I'm Alex Sargent. I am Chris Holliday. And it's time, we've finally come to it. We have. Um, it took us nearly 30 episodes but we are here today to discuss um, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring and, and who better to have on the podcast this week than Sean Gunner who is uh, chairman of the Tolkien Society. Uh, Sean, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, so Sean, um, it's, it's terrific to have you on here and it's great to unpack Lord of the Rings with you because uh, Chris has seen it for the first time today. Yes, I have. So let's out him immediately. So I could um, be useless in the next hour or two, <laughs> but um, yeah. How, how have you managed to go through the last 18 years and not seen that film? Well, that's a question that I get asked by every student I've ever taught. <laughs> uh, my parents, loved ones, um, Alex. Um, yeah. So it, no, it's something that's been on my to-watch list, um, but as, it, as Alex said, it's the perfect opportunity to do it now and to, to kind of do it with you and to talk a little bit about Tolkien. So before we start with the film itself, um, which which I we, we were talking about via uh, Twitter and you picked particularly the Fellowship. I think the Fellowship and the Two Towers were your two favourites of the trilogy, or if I misremember. Fellowship and Return of the oh, King. And Return of the King. All right, we'll talk about why you don't like the Two Towers later. <laughs> um, and but, I'll um, join in on that. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, but so the Tolkien Society, for those that don't know, do you mind just giving us a little bit of a rundown on what the sort of things you do, how you came involved in the society, and, and let's start off so, ourselves off there. Yes, yeah, so the Tolkien Society was founded in 1969 as um, essentially a fan club for Tolkien because it wanted to promote Tolkien, wanted to get more people to read Tolkien's works. Um, and our founder, Vera Chapman, she approached Tolkien himself and told him about the society and he signed up as our president, which is great, a role that he has in perpetuo to this day. Um, and the society is now a registered charity in England and Wales uh, and our aim is to promote the life and works of J.R.R. Tolkien throughout the UK and the rest of the world. So we hold events, we publish lots of journals, magazines, books about Tolkien, Lots of Tolkien research and academia. You know, one of the things that's quite important to us is actually fantasy has been uh, neglected when it comes to English literature. And that's one of the things that us, lots of us in the Tolkien Society feels quite important. That actually, fantasy literature as a genre needs to be have a lot needs to have a lot more attention paid to it. So that's something that we do a lot of. And then we have other programs as well. So one of our long-term aspirations is to set up a museum to Tolkien. We have a bursary scheme to promote scholars who want to come to our events, so we'll help fund them and their scholarship. And we also donate copies of Tolkien's books to schools and libraries as well to make sure that as many people as possible have access to the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings, the Silmarillion, and everything else that Tolkien has produced. Wow, what a terrific set of activities. It's a very, very exciting organisation. So um, so let's talk about the, 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 the movie in question then, The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, you began your role in the society 2012, I believe, is that right? Uh, yeah, I, I was a trustee since 2012. Been a, I've been the chair since 2013. Oh, okay, so so you so your journey for Tolkien clearly started way beyond that. Where were you on that journey uh, in 2001 when this movie came along? Were you already a fan, or was this part of the journey? It was. It was part of the journey. In fact, if it hadn't been for the films, there's a reasonable chance I wouldn't have read Tolkien actually, because um, I came across. I remember when I was about seven or eight. There's a 
um, comic version of The Hobbit uh, by David T. Wenzel, and I came across that in my local library, and I didn't think much of it. So it actually put me off Tolkien to a certain extent. But when I was at um, school, so I was 13, when The Fellowship of the Ring came out, and I heard these films were coming, and a friend of mine said, I want you... Why don't you give it a go? Why don't you read it? So I decided that I, I would. And it was quite exciting because I was following the stories as the films were coming out. So it was quite a, a magical time. I was the perfect age as well, you know, 13, 14, 15, uh-huh. when three films came out. And then following on from that, I thought to myself, well, obviously I'm going to need to read everything else now. Just, you know, as you do, right? Sure. Yeah. You've read, you've read sure. The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. Well, I might as well. What else is there? Well, yeah, mm. you know, what is life apart from reading everything else? <laughs> so I decided that I had to read The Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales and then the whole of the History of Middle-earth series, which is 13 books, and, you know, all the other sundry stuff. And then Tolkien's academic works. And so this sort of carried on for a number of years until um, a friend of mine um, sort of said, you know, there's this Tolkien Society, why don't you sign up and I was a little bit reluctant so she signed up on my behalf and I went along to the first event and I was astounded. I was astounded by so many intelligent, passionate people who really cared about Tolkien and really cared about sharing that and really understood the messages of the books, really understood what Professor Tolkien was trying to achieve and trying to do and trying to say and everybody's taking their own different aspects of the story and making it their own but it was incredible being a part of a family of people who just shared that passion and so after I finished university um, I thought to myself well you know it's probably time that I got a bit more involved in the society so I I volunteered and within six months I was one of the trustees and within 18 months I was the chair and six years on, I'm still the chair, so I seem to be doing something right. Yeah, yeah. At least absolutely. I keep banging on about the Lord of the Rings, which I think is the number one requirement for the job, right? I, I would have thought so. <laughs> I would have thought it's it, it's up there, isn't I, I, it? Yeah. I'd be no good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, um, what what was it? Thinking back to these movies, it's interesting that I, I didn't know that that you you actually came to them through the movies. That's probably true of a lot of people, I imagine, mm-hmm. that they sort of find it an almost an accessible window into this incredibly dense, fascinating, but oftentimes almost overwhelming complexity of world creation going on there so what was it about this first movie The Fellowship of the Ring that you can remember or that you could offer now as an explanation as to what it was that gripped you immediately about about this this world so I think one of the things that Tolkien does really well and I think Jackson has done a pretty good job of replicating this at least in in the Lord of the Rings films and that is the reason why so many people can fall in love with The Lord of the Rings. And bearing in mind it sold 150 million copies worldwide, one of the best-selling novels in all of human history. I think one of the reasons for that is the variety of characters. So it's really easy for people, and I'm sure I'm sitting with a, a table with two of them, who think there are way too many characters in this <laughs> book, right? And I understand that criticism, but actually what you see in those characters is sort of archetypes of different aspects of the human condition and that's what Tolkien is doing actually different people when you ask them about Lord of the Rings and their favourite characters there's actually a big long list of people who pick different ones because actually different characters speak to them and that was something that I saw straight away when I was watching the Lord of the Rings I thought actually this is very clever what you're doing here with all these different characters but not only that for 
someone who was 13 and you know even now when I'm 30 and I, I watch the films and I think to myself these are beautiful you know this is stunning this is a world beyond my imagination and creative ability that I could only dream of and that's something when you see it and you just think to yourself I want to find out a little bit more about this and as you say you mentioned world creation Jackson can't do that in a film he can't do everything he's created the setting for it but then you go back to the books and you see that Tolkien's created these genealogies and these languages and these histories in a way that are an incredible depth that no one else could possibly replicate and I think that's the that's the skill and the craft and I think to give Jackson his credit he he doesn't try to trample on those things he actually sort of leaves them there and he's very clear to direct people towards the books and to recognize Tolkien's skill as a creator and a storyteller i think on the topic of on the topic of worlds actually that's something that maybe connects up fantasy and, and animation and one of the things that um we would use as maybe a barometer of you know quote unquote success is is the is the way in which fantasy fiction fantasy cinema um and equally animated movies animated kind of tv programs serial narratives um the way in which worlds are created that give the impression that there is obviously this pre-existing world and what we're watching is is the outcome of a world that has organized itself into a series of stories and ultimately this is what and somebody coming to the film fresh i knew a bit about the characters and actually i thought that the film handled that sort of wealth of characters really well i didn't need that much sort of dipping in and out of the movie to remember to look at my notes to figure out who's that and i think the stardom helps i i, I could figure out who was who and but i thought the film did a really good job of organizing the characters and making it you know making it accessible and not overwhelming I can imagine that subsequent movies, obviously the second two in this first trilogy, um, and then obviously the the next three, I guess, ten years later, which comes at a time when you are involved in the society yeah. more directly, which is sort of interesting as well. Um, but I wonder, yeah, well, there's a lot going on. There is a lot of characters, but I thought the the film certainly did a good job, and maybe that's where the voiceover at the start and the narrative, it really does literally help set the scene, and I felt I had an understanding of you talked about genealogies, I felt like I had an understanding of the history of the world. The world itself has its own history. This is why ruins are really interesting, that ruins tell us about uh, culture and clashes and violence and tension, and therefore the history of a world that we're entering into at this particular point. And so I really enjoyed the way that the film set, set all that up. And yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't often watch a movie for the first time. I go, that was great, but I thought it was great. Like I really, I really enjoyed it and, and now desperately want to watch the other uh, I'll say other two rather than the other five. <laughs> but but what I thought about when with adaptation this time and, and watching it for the umpteenth amount of time was that it does this very clever tone, I think, in the films, which is probably how it managed to make so many quote-unquote changes or simplifications without upsetting fans. And it, it seems to offer this, this kind of... Um, this world that it kind of shows us but accepts that it's not giving us all the information right there's a lot of frames and 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 scenes in this movie that seem to allude to a world that fans know more about and will be able to fill in the gaps but it doesn't not it doesn't uh, remove those complexities but rather just sort of simply doesn't bring them to the forefront you know i'm thinking of the sort of intricacies of isengard and all this sort of stuff that isn't introduced in the film i forget that like none of the the tower isn't named all this kind of stuff but fans know it so it's this interesting 
way of adapting that seems to sort of have this narrative that it's quite truncated and simplified compared to the original that kind of like a nice stepping stone of this massive river of information that fans can see in all its complexity and sort of casual fans can just sort of enjoy the, the more sort of light narrative it's an interesting approach to adaptation is does it go down well in the Tolkien community or are you uh, uh, having to defend it often at the, the society meetings and um, things? yeah the so Views on the Lord of the Rings films are mixed. So <laughs> that usually means bad. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's genuinely so. There's, okay. it is, you know, there's probably fifty percent of people who love them and fifty percent of people who don't. Um, you know, it, and it depends on how you how you approach it. Because um, some people see the films as having to be or should be an accurate portrayal of exactly what is in the book, word for word. And if you judge it on that basis, then they're never going to come out well. Mm-hmm. But if you if you judge it as a representation of that world, then I think it actually comes out it comes out very very well. And of course, one of the things that I say to some of the more scholarly members is actually I think one of the one of the best ways of approaching the Lord of the Rings films is actually treat them in and of themselves as a form of literary criticism on Tolkien himself. That's interesting. So you people will say, okay, he's changed Faramir, there's no Tom Bombadil, or whatever it is that people are complaining about. Okay, let's understand why has Jackson done that? Because Jackson is saying something about Tolkien's works in doing that. Why is Jackson pulling out particular parts of it and actually dropping down others? Because he's got a story to tell, and he's obviously wants to tell his story in a in a slightly nuanced way compared with Tolkien, but I think he is actually said that there are some important things that he's saying about Tolkien in doing that. So when Tolkien was creating the Lord of the Rings and creating his works on Middle Earth, Tolkien himself, and he says this, he started with a map. He wanted to create the map. The map underpinned the world because that's what made it real. When you're able to present the map and show all the locations, that creates reality to it. Yeah. Just as when you're looking at a map on your phone, right? Yeah. When I was walking here, the map on my phone, I had no idea where King's College was, but <laughs> I, you know, I had to, I had to, um, I had to use the map to find out. And you look at the Jackson films. Actually, he keeps that in. That's quite prominent. Actually, the maps. You know, at the very start, you mentioned the prologue at the beginning yeah. of the film. Yeah. My first note is on is on the map, and I wanted yeah. to ask you about maps and gen, and obviously thinking about fantasy fiction, and um, and I'm my mind was racing to things like open world video games in the mid mm. in the mid 90s and it was uh, you know the, the way in which animated movies are often you create in the case of monsters university you create a campus map the film is never going to visit elements of those of that location it's, they're not going to be seen but it's important to understand a kind of that unifying consistency or that logic or that kind of state of affairs and the film, the film. I mean, I don't know whether the novel, and I'm coming from a, a position from out, outside, if you like, um, whether the novel includes a map at the start. Yes. Yeah, and there's something about, I don't know, whether fantasy, I, I'd be interested to, to see whether that's something that's very kind of fantasy specific and the way that it's trying to anchor it in a, in a sense of kind of geographical co- coherency or consistency because of the way it's fantasy. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean... It's certainly the case, so one of the things when you look at Tolkien, what's really important about Tolkien in the history of fantasy is that he reshaped how fantasy is written. And so one of the things that happens with Tolkien, you know, but when you look at fantasy before Tolkien, you've got like Lewis Carroll, you know, Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan, but they are, these aren't the same. You know, these are not internally consistent worlds that are created in the same level and depth 
as when you get from Tolkien. You look at what comes after Tolkien, the wealth of fantasy literature that has these internally consistent worlds is really important. And how many fantasy series are there now yeah. that have a map in them? Yeah. Like you can, I can think of Game of Thrones. I can think of, you know, Narnia has a map. Is there some, so is there something in the way that maps, yeah, they organize the space. Earthsea. They, Earthsea. Earthsea. Earthsea has a map. So uh, what's Earthsea? <laughs> this is what I have to put up with, Sean. Thank you. Why is Ursi? Who's talking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. No, th- but there's something around. Yeah, there's something around maps. There's something around. Um, yeah, the organisation of uh, and kind of yeah, a spatial awareness and and certainly in this uh, and maybe that map that you know, excuse me, that maps onto the fact this is you know, essentially a journey narrative that plays across this mm-hmm. franchise. Uh, the film itself comes at you know starts production in '99, is finally released in 2001. Um, there's lots of scholars that have written about the kind of millennial. Uh, or post-millennial period, Thomas Schatz has written about the franchise mentality. We now, classical Hollywood deal primarily with genres, and now we have a turn towards cycles and series, and obviously as we sit here now um, thinking about the Marvel Universe and all this yeah. sort of thing. That the, There's a way in which genres have been replaced by this sort of franchise mentality, this kind of cycle and series approach to, to, to narratives, um, of, of which this film is a great example, and it kind of maps that journey narrative onto a series of additive segments i.e the the films and then presumably the extended version of the films and then the tie-in video game that they're trying to pull in all these different elements um that build a world that but, function like the map does but all those sort of um industrial elements um almost happened by accident as a result of the structure of the original novel right in that the original novel well it's, it, it was a novel and then the publishers was it ballantine i forget the publishers originally uh no george allen unwin. unwin thank you um uh just Gonna say that. Oh. Uh, split them into made the decision to split them into three. But pure save on paper costs, I believe. Yeah, it was post-war paper. Um, but then they realised that basically that means they've got three books out of one, right? And and it and so basically it's all set up there. I think there's a famous anecdote Jackson tells where um, he was struggling to get the film financed, so he basically was pitching them two movies, um, and then in I think in New Line as the last. Well, I bet this has probably been romanticised by him over the years, but I like the story. Um, they sort of listened to his spiel and went, "Why on earth would you do this in two movies?" Um, this is three movies, surely, him thinking that they were going to cancel on him and actually, you know, there's three books, they've got the titles, they're all there waiting for it, this is three movies. And that decision to film them all in one go and then release them completely changed the industry going forward. Um, but it was a real audacious one. I mean, how and why New Line um, decided to give a reasonably up-and-coming filmmaker, he hadn't made had a huge hit, a budget to make three movies back to back of this very well respected um, novel that's been spent, had sort of gone round studio to studio over the years with the rights. Um, I don't know a lot about the estate's role in all this, but they were obviously very protective over it um, to be made. How they ended up commissioning the damn thing is 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 incredible, but it, it has completely changed the um, the industry to come. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and you look at how, aside from fantasy films and mm-hmm. just generally fantasy sci-fi films it's obviously changed the economy of new zealand like you know <laughs> the, you know there's there's one film one film trilogy has actually reshaped an entire country's economy and i don't just mean obviously the tourism that's been generated from it but the fact that new zealand is now a hub for film production yeah and it's incredible right yeah i mean i, I was thinking about uh, its use of effects or in some cases and different kinds of effects like it's different registers and, and so forth. um and some of the some of the things that that 
kind of cropped up, I think, is the the spectacle of real space. And we were talking a bit before we, before we started this sort of the spectacle of real space. And, and I have, I've never seen the films, but I've been to New Zealand, and it's and obviously, as you said, the tourism is really important, and you can certainly visit some of the locations. And I can recognise some of the the sequences from the film. I have whitewater rafted down that that river. Um, and very famously, that's how it's marketed. That's how the, the attraction is sold. Um, but the spectacle of real space, and I think the film sits on that really interesting point because it does use digital effects and, and uses them tremendously well, um, but it does sit on that kind of pivot point or on the cusp of, of two different kinds, or that knife edge between two different kinds of effects imagery. On the one hand, practical effects, and it's used to force perspective, particularly uh, Gandalf's relationship to um, the... What, things with the funny feet. Hobbits. Hobbits. Oh, goodness me. Totally blanked. Hobbits. I had elves running through my head. Um, and so the use of kind of practical in-camera effects and then some incredible CG work, I guess. Um, but the film, yeah, I, I didn't feel like I was overwhelmed with, with visual effects. And actually, I think it's a nice... Yeah, the, the, the film tries to do, certainly early on, when they're in the Shire, tries to play it quite practically, tries to do it a lot in camera, that feeling of sets, and it got me thinking about sort of actor labour, um, which is one of the things that crops up a lot when digital effects enter the fray, that this actor had to act in front of a tennis ball on a stick, on a ping pong ball on a stick, etc. But there's something about when they're in the Shire in the first, I don't know, half an hour, something like that, where it's, it feels like it's very homely and earthy and grounded because of the effects and later it gets more fantastical um, because it's it's sort of I don't know a lot more virtual or a lot more um, if these are effects driven moments whereas early on I felt that while they're in the Shah it's, it feels very tangible very material you're late a wizard is never late Frodo Baggins nor is he early he arrives precisely when he means to. <laughs> it's wonderful to see you, Gandalf. <laughs> you didn't think I'd miss your uncle Bilbo's birthday. <laughs> what news of the outside world? Tell me everything. Everything? Far too eager and curious for a hobbit. Most unnatural. Okay, I'm just going to pause the podcast here for a second because I'd like to address all the budding writers out there listening. Uh, we at fantasy-animation.org uh, run a weekly blog post and we get uh, lots of people reading these blog posts every week um, tweeting them wildly, um, talking about them, and sharing them with their own followers and their own listeners. So they're a real great platform for those out there who want to sort of try their hand at writing for the first time, or try their hand at, at getting some more publications under their belt and don't know where to go to. If you're an early career researcher, um, somebody who uh, is a filmmaker who wants to reflect on their practice, if you're a student of animation, if you study animation, animation theory, animation history, uh, if you're a fan of animation, um, do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Um, as I said, try out some ideas, send us some thoughts. Um, we'd love to get into a conversation with you about your work uh, and then we'll look to be able to publish it on our blog post. This podcast exists not so Chris and I can talk to each other. It exists a little bit for that. But so we can talk to you out there. So if you think you might want to take part, get in touch with us fantasy-animation.org 
I feel that way in the show, and I feel that way when they come out of the mines of Moria, um, when they w arrive back on a mountainside, and having been inside in the dark, great big CGI monsters have been fighting them. There's been a lot of sets that have been CGI. Um, I'm not sure I'm conscious of it, but there's that feeling of being back in an open space that's real and in a, in a real world that's definitely there. I wonder if what you're talking about, though, Chris, um, is relates to what Sean was saying there about sort of um, capturing the spirit of Tolkien. And one of the things that I think the films do very well visually is that they get at... I think what Tolkien's novel does as a writing style, and I'm not the p first person to say this, but sort of what Tolkien does is he blends the sort of rhetoric or writing style of the sort of the great um, 20th century novel yeah, with a fantastical storyline. So as you said, what you had before Lord of the Rings is you had Peter Pan or you had, you know, uh, The Great Gatsby. Yeah, um, one desperately trying to sort of infuse a story with authenticity, with psychological realism, and, stuff, and the other fantastical, fable-like, um, fairy tale-like. And what Tolkien does is he writes a fairy tale in the style of the modern novel, right? Um, and I wonder if what we get here is, is a fantasy film that's finally made within the style of modern realist action cinema, I guess, is, is rather than, say, the 80s and the 90s. Where like you Labyrinth. Get, like, Labyrinth, or, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly, which are wonderful, but in a very, they, they speak in a very different register. I don't know if, if that strikes for anything you thought about the movie at all. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I think that's a fair I think that's a fair point, um, and I think it's something really interesting to me that actually, in, and Great Gatsby is another example that how in the twenty first century we're now going back to a lot of these novels again, and we and we film like you know the Great Gatsby film mm -hmm. with um, Leonardo DiCaprio is actually a great film. I, um, I agree. I think a lot of people disagree, but yeah. we'll, we'll have you back to do that one, <laughs> one time. Um, <laughs> I, think um, a, I think it's a great film. Yeah. But it it shows that actually there is, uh, and I think this partly plays into what you're talking about with the Shah in particular, that sense of nostalgia. It, actually, a lot of people look back, and you know, when you look at the Shah, because the Shah is, take, take out the fact that they're living in holes under the ground, it's essentially a Victorian Edwardian society that they're living in, right? And you know the way they talk about the food and their home furnishings and the comforts that they've got. You know they've got they've got plumbed in toilets. So you know they're not <laughs> they're, they're not they're not quite you know living in hovels under the ground. Um, and I think for me it's interesting that we keep on going back to these novels and, and thinking to ourselves, let's redo them. And the, and we're seeing it even right now with Amazon bought the rights to do a Lord of the Rings TV series from the year after next and they're going to redo the whole thing again and, and you think well how are you going to top those films why would you why would you make that effort to do that but obviously it's because they see that the the power of the storylines and the characters and the visuals and the locations and everything else and they see that there's still that commercial interest in people going to Middle Earth and immersing themselves in that culture in that world in those languages the geography everything that there is about it and i find that really fascinating it genuinely every time i hear about a book from say 40 50 60 70 80 years ago that hollywood are now making into a film i think to myself why because it's not like there's any shortage of books coming out now that they could adapt why are you choosing to go back to that and it's 
I, I think fundamentally it's a nostal- it's nostalgia. And I think that's what appeals to people about the show in particular is this sense of nostalgia. The English countryside, that Victorian yeah. society. Kind of pastoral element. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose that's the that's the thing with, with historical epics or, or period dramas, that they're very rarely about the period that they're set in. They're about the period that in which they're being made, you know, and then that, that, that sort of that push-pull relationship with the way in which history is, is used. Um, it kind of gets me thinking about what you said earlier about the act of adaptation being itself a process of kind of rhetorical criticism i.e. what's being left in what's being left out um, how are these pieces being moved and again what you that Alex you, you said about the, the registers there it feels like there's enough in there and I know that watching these watching um, Fellowship of the Ring that there's stuff in there for fans that I'm I'm sure they're going to get and love, but there was there was still plenty in there and enough in there for me to just I just kind of be taken along with it, and I didn't feel like I was missing out. It kind of whetted my appetite. Um, hopefully, we'll get to talk about the ending where it sort of left me going right. Well, let's put the next. I've got three hours to spare. Let's pop the next one on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was. Uh, it's a film of lo- uh, with a lot of moving parts, a lot of characters, um, but I feel like the, yeah, that opening prologue, the map, the introduction to the shy, everything was very grounded, and I could understand. It was a very very uh, good way of anchoring two different kinds of spectatorship and keying us into the world of, of Tolkien, really. The prologue is, is it obviously doesn't start with, it, I don't know if it's obviously it doesn't start like that, but it doesn't start like that in the books. It starts like that. It starts with um, Frodo in the Shire, well, Bilbo's party, right? Um, and that prologue took them ages to sort of conceive and think through and things like that. And Jackson refers to it as his sort of James Bond pre-title sequence because it kind of... Um, <laughs> Um, it, it dumps a lot of narrative on you and gives you a lot of stuff that you really need for the rest of the story. But it does it whilst also having that massive war spectacle that actually doesn't, the likes of which you don't really see again in the first Fellowship. Spoiler alert, there's some of that to come, you know. But um, in a way, it kind of cues you up visually and, and narratively because it goes, it goes here's, the, here's the narrative you need, but also don't worry, plough through it because we're going to get to some great big action spectacle for you action fans out there as well. So there's a sort of interesting dual register going on with yeah, that well, the Yeah, well, con- the connection you made to action cinema, there's a lot of stuff, and I'm the cynical person in me is the, and I don't know whether there's a Lord of the Rings video game. That was a wild accusation I levelled at the film earlier on. Um, but there's something about set pieces, you know, different levels, and we're here now, and the journey narrative obviously lends itself to that very nicely. Um, but there's lots and lots of set pieces and moments in the film, and now we're here, and now we're here, and we're at different moments and different places in uh, in the world. But you're right, after my note on the voiceover and the map of Middle-earth that contributes to this world building, the next thing I've got is about this kind of CG battle where, um, and this kind of, I guess, ties it quite nicely industrially and visually and stylistically to the early 2000s, and I think I've mentioned this on on episodes before the the um, the use of crowd and crowd simulation software and hordes and armies and scholars such as Christian uh, Vissel have written about the digital multitude and we have this early 2000s period of historical epics that are rooted visually films like Gladiator Kingdom of Heaven uh, Alexander Troy uh, films that are anchored very much visually to a, a, a a, uh, what's the word? A plethora of people, an army uh, uh, that are filling in the, the crevices to the world. The world is full, not because necessarily that they're well-rounded characters at this stage, ten minutes into the movie, but because the world is full and it's full of people. And that, and I, so I really like that. So it's very much uh, of that early 2000s period um, using and I didn't realise this and I the use of massive software that I hadn't realised um, was developed by. Uh, or developed in Wellington by Peter Jackson, and that he was kind of he was he was wanting a particular software 
to be able to replicate. And and that brings me to the uh, something I was gonna I was gonna ask you about why these films and what certainly why this television program or this new adaptation this. Ru- uh, is is it just that like technology because obviously there was a version of, of Lord of the Rings very famously that was animated by a certain Ralph Bakshi but I don't know there's there's something quite interesting about okay we can now do this we can now replicate and represent a world like this because the technology exists so I don't I, w- I wonder whether that plays a part whether this film is the perfect film with which to try out crowd simulation software to play with certain elements of design and digital effects like it's fantasy seems to lend itself quite nicely to that you know we it, it's around at this time because we could do it they could do it in digital effects is it adapted now because the technology becomes available yeah or does the technology become available because it's adapted now there's an odd way yeah those stories are told aren't there yeah I mean, you've got um so often filmmakers will go we had to develop this specially for the film for the film exactly yes. so fantasy ne- necessitates the invention of some sort of software to keep up with our imagination yeah or look we've got the software now what film can we use with it yeah. both narratives often play out in um popular discourse. very much like the fantasy animation relation hey. you know wh- which comes first fantasy requires animation to be able to render its worlds and all this sort of stuff um but equally what's how what's the best way to articulate what animation can do it's often through fantasy narratives and it seems to me as i was watching um lord of the rings the film is about telling stories and how stories are passed along between people and and legends and, and there's that line i can't remember exactly how it goes but something becomes legend legend becomes myth something like that it's the way that that stories and narratives are passed along um and one of the key ways that this story is told is visually of course but also through its use of use of effects um and also uh, something we talked about that i want to ask you character design so um are the character designs faithful how does that work in the world of 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 tolkien because it's very visually striking the film um but you mentioned off air something about the character designs that there is a sort of the people who drew the, yeah. the novels is that so, right yeah so there's two artists in particular that have um illustrated a lot of the books alan lee and john howe and when peter jackson was sort of creating his team for the films he went to them and said i want you to do my films and you know we've since you know he's been asked why you know you had all the artists, all the set designers in the world you could have chosen, and he chose the two people who just illustrated the books. And he said that the reason was that he wanted to be consistent to the world that they had right. visually produced so that Tolkien fans would be familiar with it when they saw it. So it's interesting when we go back to thinking about the idea of subcreation and how a subcreation has to be internally consistent. Yeah. Jackson himself was being internally consistent with everything else that's been even illustrations in books, which I think is an interesting dynamic between the illustrations that go with the books that people read to the designs that go on screen and people who come and see the films the first time and then go and read the books afterwards and see those illustrations in the books. Yeah. So one of the best examples of it is Gandalf. You know, John Howells designed Gandalf um, he did one of the most famous covers for The Lord of the Rings, and Jackson looked at it and said, that's what he wanted his Gandalf to be like. And ev- and even now, people will look at it and think, that's exactly the same. And that's one of the reasons why, aside from Ian McKellen's excellent acting, people look at Gandalf and love Gandalf, because it is spot on 
to the Gandalf in the books. It looks like Gandalf should look. He behaves like Gandalf should behave. And I think that's really... It's a, it's a really interesting dynamic from Jackson and very clever from him to actually make sure that everybody looked at those films and thought, yeah, this is... I'm expecting this because I've seen this kind of, you know, a drawing like that on screen in the book that I read 20 years ago. And I think that's, from him, a very clever move because... You know, these films, he spent, I think the budget was 180 million, something like that. They could have been a complete flop. You know, he, he made two films before the first one had even come out. They did them all back to back. And he, need, he knew that he needed to leverage Tolkien fandom as best as possible to at least make sure that it broke even, right? I'm not, I don't think that he expected to, ha to get to a point where Return of the King is winning 11 Oscars. I don't think anybody was really expecting that was gonna that was gonna be the end game for this. I think he was thinking to himself, I wanna make three cracking films. I obviously don't wanna completely mess this up and lose all the money, so I need to get this over the line. Because actually that was the reason why they filmed back to back was more, was about cost. It wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a clever strategy on their part, it was simply uh we were gonna have to take everything down and build it back up again. Just did it for cost. Um but the way he did it was utilising the fans and making sure they were included in the process. And I think that's part of the reason why you picked two of the biggest artist fans in designing it and being part of that visual canon. I refer to it as the visual canon a lot of the time because I think that's what Jackson has helped to create in people's minds. You know, when, when people think about Frodo or Gollum or Gandalf or the Shire or Rivendell, they think about the ones that Jackson has created. Mm. And I, don't have, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. But I think it's, I think it's a huge boon to him that actually he's created those visuals that everybody thinks. You know, they see Ian McKellen's Gandalf. That's Gandalf. That right there. That's Gandalf. I think it all, it goes back as well to Tolkien when you think about those characters that he created. That he was able in that book, and I know Lord of the Rings is a long book, hundred. Well, 1,200 pages. Right. Um, I'll start now. Yep. That in that book, he has created all these different characters and all their facets. And, may, and then P Peter Jackson was able to take them and put them on screen and people were like, yes, this is it. Well, it, again, it's the, it's the thing with nostalgia. It's the, you know, working with people that have worked and, and created a lot. I love the idea of a visual canon, that it's sort of this, uh, that there is a sense of consistency that feeds into the world, um, the nostalgia. And you mentioned people that maybe have read it when there were certain age and now they're of an age where they might have children and there there's something around yeah the shape of audiences and now hollywood responds to audiences and uh, baby boom has become a certain age they become parents there's a you know they're all their children there's a rise in that genre then they become parents there's a rise in the family film they become you know grandparents hollywood is now veering towards narratives of aging and jerry action so there's some interesting you know the way that hollywood is historically and culturally contingent and we and we and we know this but yeah i like the idea that there's a that the visual canon maybe plays into that nostalgia that it's reacting the lord of rings films are reacting to the fans and the shape of the fans and what what they would be interested in and that shorthand you know that we i, I already audiences can come to it and they don't and not don't need a lot of legwork they're in and visually the film is we're up to a certain level um coupled with the narration we're away and that, and when you talk about the the legwork, at no point is Gandalf actually explained to you what he is or why he's there. No, that, that is <laughs> he just right. He just turns up. Yes, he literally just turns up on a cart. 
But right away, you're like, oh, I know who Gandalf is. Gandalf's the wizard. Yeah. He's the, the magic wise, guy. knowing. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that's, that is a credit to the character, to Jackson, to Tolkien, that actually you, you don't need to be told. Like, why is this character there? This character's there for the journey. He's going to make stuff happen. So I suppose, okay, on the flip side of that then, and this maybe is a question for, for Alex as, as fantasist, is the... Uh, so does Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, its, it's reference point is, of course, or one of its intertextual reference points is, of course, the the novels because it's it's adapted. It's a process. That I, lo- I, love, yeah, I love this idea of rhetorical... It's, it's doing something with the components that we think make up Tolkien and taking some but leaving some there. Um... But presumably the film was obviously speaking to histories of fantasy cinema. And so I'm wondering whether yeah. an audience watching this going, okay, so I've seen that. I, I can trace those things back to a fantasy cinema that I've also seen before. And, and, and so, you know, I think it would be foolish, if that's the right word, to, to attribute the film. I, I wonder whether the film is mixing the novel. Of course it is. But it's also it's it, part of that impurity maybe comes from a history of fantasy film as well. well. Well, sort of, except that actually I think what it's doing in, in a similar way that mirrors the novel is it's 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 um, offering itself as an opposition to histories of fantasy. Oh, You've right. got to remember when this film comes out, the 90s have basically been a very uh, tough time for high fantasy on screen. Uh, the 80s had a great big sort of mini explosion, but a lot of those films that we fondly remember didn't make much money. Um, and the industry had sort of sworn off high fantasy by the 90s. And what was big was action films. And what had just got big was the historical epic. So um, Gladiator yeah. had been a massive success. Um Probably whilst this film was still being made, but it might have been at least in the commissioning. Seems um, about the same producers. sort of time as I said, like 1999, that 1992,000 period. I think it was the 2000 Oscars, I think, that Gladiator was at. So it was fresh in everybody's mind, certainly. Um, and what this film does is, is sort of it deliberately um, tries not to, to recall the legacy of those 80s. Right, 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 right. It tries to recall Gladiator. It, I think it, it's trying to do what I think Tolkien described as feigned history mm. um, it's it's not fantasy it's faux history and all this kind of um, commitments to realism commitments to um, action spectacle this yeah. is all very um, I think deliberate attempt to steer it away from that kind of comparison um, it isn't like other fantasy right, films right. don't worry because I think selling this to fantasy fans is, is, is not a good idea for producers so it's reference point is actually action cinema yeah. of the 90s 2000 period. Yeah, I think so. And historical epics. I mean, actually, the better example was something like Braveheart or something like that, or Titanic, the historical epic, yeah. um, with these great big spectacular set pieces. Um, yeah, and you mentioned Braveheart. I remember being told some years ago that, and I did check this afterwards, that the very, very first trailer for The Fellowship of the Ring used music from Braveheart. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. That's so when's Braveheart? 95? Yeah, ninety six. Okay, yeah, they used okay. one of the wow one of the tracks from it in the um, in the trailers. I can see that. I can see the similarity. Yeah, and I, I agree. You know, when you look at when you look at the trailers, they're not selling a fantasy story. They're they're selling a quest, that epic. That's what mm. they're selling. They're not saying, "Oh, come along to hear some elves speaking elvish." Mm. That isn't that is not the sale that they're yeah. making. The sale they're making is this is a quest. You know, there's a big bad guy. We're going to go defeat the bad guy. Does this suggest that fantasy is, and, and you know, th- this debate around fantasy's medium, impulse, genre, that here is an example of fantasy being melded 
does that? I mean, does this destabilize fantasy as identity as a genre? If it's being melded with stuff like the historical epic, stuff like the action, the action movie. I mean, don't forget, ninety nine two thousand is a key period where you have what the so ninety nine is Phantom Menace. Then Harry Potter starts in two thousand one, I think. Something uh, like that. It comes out. I think in, it comes out almost the same yeah. day as the Fellowship of the Ring. Okay. Uh, you have the uh, the X Men movie in two thousand. You have Gladiator, obviously. Um, there's a lot going on. Matrix is not. There's a lot going on here. This nineteen ninety thousand two thousand one period. Um, and so I, I'm, ju- I'm just I'm just thinking about whether this this what's this doing to fantasy? Is it suggesting that fantasy isn't stock characters this and this? But what it is is to something that can be grafted on quite fluidly to a kind of cinema that you're into. I, I don't know the answer to this, well, but well, I like yes, the action cinema as a reference point. The complication to that is, of course, that if we think of fantasy as a genre, that's because of Tolkien, and that's because ah. of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, that genre codified quest narrative map at the beginning, uh, sacred object, uh, all of that is Tolkien. And what is high fantasy? I don't what, think we've had, this has ever come up, but um, <laughs> and I'm sorry, uh, the two fantasists in the room, take a sip of water and prepare this. But there's something I've, I actually have here, high fantasy question mark, because and I think this goes back to, to Sean's point about that looks like a wizard. What sure. High fantasy question mark. Discuss with reference to Lord <laughs> uh, of the Rings. Uh, we can riff on this together, Sean. But I think literally a high fantasy, depending on which definition you read, is simply a fantasy story that takes place in a completely secondary autonomous world. Okay. Um, so that's all that it needs to be to be a high fantasy. However, quite often the term is used as genre fantasy. I believe... Um, yeah, quite a few scholars trade with that term. And usually when they say genre fantasy, they mean... Uh, Stories inspired by Tolkien that were popular in the sort of 60s, 70s. Ballantine Books, which is my mistake earlier, were a big uh, trader in this kind of thing. They basically sold... Uh, for want of a better word, knock off Lord of the Rings. Give me, give me another version of that. And some of them are very good, but um, you know, I, I'm basically interested in, in getting another Lord of the Rings out of someone. Um, Terry Brooks, these sort of second wave yeah. fantasy writers who um, create these worlds that are different to some respects and have often very different thematic interests, but you know, have a stock pile of characters of elves, dwarfs, uh, wizards, uh, these kind of things, and are very Tolkien-esque in their in their basic narrative. Um, I don't know if Sean has uh, any extra thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think that's a that's a fair description. You know, we're going back. You know, when you were talking about how um, when you're talking about how the Lord of the Rings films may have played from previous fantasy. Yeah. You know, as Alex was saying, that actually, fantasy is defined by Tolkien. You know, it's you can draw a line in the sand, right, in, in the history of literature, and just be like. Before Tolkien, after Tolkien for fantasy literature, and it's that it's that clear. Right, it is that mm-hmm. clear. Um, yeah, with high fantasy, I think you're right. It's the the idea of that internally consistent world that's separate from our own, and it has lots of traits that we are familiar with. Right, you know, like the languages, like the maps, like the various races. You know, those are all common common elements. You see that in lots of other types of high fantasy as well, because what Tolkien has essentially created. And again, he had no idea that he was really doing it at the time. I mean, he he, under, he was a philologist fundamentally, so he understood fairy tales and storytelling, but I don't think he quite appreciated the impact that he'd had until later on in his life, that he basically created the template for how you how you do fantasy sto- novels. Yeah. And, you know, ve- many other writers have said that, you know, whether it be Terry Pratchett or George R. R. Martin or J.K. Rowling, they've all, they all make reference to Tolkien, be like, yeah, he was the... 
he was like the father of this genre. Yeah, well, one of the things I said to, to Alex, we, we had a, a, a sort of, there's a nice pause in the film between the first and second act, you know, that they've, uh, they're about to go on the, the mission now. and the shall co- be the Fellowship of the, the ring. ring. Pause, tea break. Yeah, curtain comes up. Um, <laughs> but we were, in that, in that brief interlude, we were thinking about its relationship to Harry Potter. And I was, that, that map, it's very similar. It's very similar in that you can certainly map, map the key elements, but they're totally different in some ways but I think I hadn't realised that that line in the sand was so prominent that, that it, it, Tolkien is is high fantasy yeah and yeah, that puts a lot of pressure fantasy, on the movie there's a fantasy then. historian I, I, I'm forgetting his name um, I will potentially edit his name in now in the podcast um, yeah he sounds so, great so he or she of, sounds great um, um, uh, but but Describes it as uh, Tolkien fell like a giant meteorite on fantasy, right. and, and the dinosaurs that were before were eradicated. You know, it's some sort of you know as dramatic as that. So it's, you, it was, that's, um, that's nice. I think Don't sometimes Lewis is thrown into the equation a yeah. little bit, but I yeah. think um, you know, I think um, it's largely it's largely Tolkien. I like right that now. the dinosaurs. So there was there was Jurassic Park. Yes, the yes. dinosaurs, <laughs> fa- and now you've got and now we've got this incredible got sort of yeah. uh, and yeah, this as I said, this film on the cusp of two VFX traditions. This and, and and you know you, you would get the same spectacle of landscape today, but it would be all done inside, on CG. You know, yeah. blue screen, green screen, green screen, which I I understand is was one of the the features of the Hobbit. A lot of the stuff that I've seen of the behind the scenes footage of the Hobbit is just them inside. But there's something around that sense of place and and space. Um, that there is that spectacle of landscape that obviously ties in with what you said earlier about the tourism element, but. Um, what that means for when actors perform in the CGI environments versus their performance in an open space. Um, I, my last note on the movie is like movement is key in this film. Everything is a journey narrative, of course, but everything is about like direction, directional movement, left to right and, f- and forward and back and there and back again. Like the whole movie is like the, on this forward momentum. Um, and uh, that only comes, it's, or it seems to me that it only comes from them just being outside and there's a bit where I think it's Aragon is running towards his, he's, and this is where the name will escape me. So this is when you edit it in. Yeah. But he's running towards the camera. He runs through a, a sort of little puddle thing and up onto it and looks over. And it's all done in one take. And I thought, oh, he's just running through the space because he can, because it's outside and it's it's brilliant. So that kind of spectacle of, uh, and there's a, there's a line as well that Gandalf says about presents that go unnoticed. And I thought that was a nice way to describe the CG. Certainly in the first, the bits that are outside, it's, it's New, New Zealand, but nuanced with CGI at really interesting and, and, and lovely moments. And that's why I, I like the fact that it took, it took place outside on location. Yeah, um, there's a real joy in set construction yeah. and the set designs. The Rivendell sequence is really lush and gorgeous. Stuff's happening. Um, Stuff's happening on screen. Yeah. It's not. It's it's happening in production. It's not happening in post. I think that was that was my feeling with it. Though obviously, lots of it is um, kind of it's gone through the grading suite. It's gone through that sort of digital intermediary. Um, CG is very additive. We now have a cave troll. Yeah, that kind of stuff. You, um, look at, you take the Shire, for instance. The amount of effort they went to to create the Shire outside yeah as, as a, a space as yeah a, as a real place is incredible you think any like in many other films you would just cgi all of that which they could have done yeah and they chose not to because i think they wanted that sense of reality didn't, didn't i read that he, he planted stuff like a year before or yeah. something and let yeah. it let it grow to feel like things how things grow so it looks natural yeah which it does it looks incredibly luscious and real and you just think to yourself my god you know, and to the point where people can go to New Zealand yeah. and visit it because it it was real. It is real. 
Yeah, but that's re- that seems really important for a film that we would, uh, you know, Lord of the Rings. Oh, it's that film that has all those dragons and all that. Fa- well, no, because the first half an hour takes place very. It's you know, it's a it's a. I, th- I think I think that I think there's been some fan studies by, by Martin Barker's uh, Lord of the Rings project where quite a lot of that was the consistent feedback was it's 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 fantasy but it feels real and the hesitancy to do and I think if actually from both the novels and the films if they teach us anything is that mainstream audiences of either category uh, like like uh, respond best to fantasy when it's cloaked in this rhetoric of realism, whether that be visual or, or narratively, because it was the same. I, I would attribute one of the reasons the original novel was such a success was that exact reason. The films were praised for injecting this element of realism. Um, we're speaking today on 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 uh, at the time of recording when Game of Thrones is finally wrapping up. But that exactly um, one of the reasons people love the opening series is has been that re- realism aesthetic, and and one of the reasons these series are being critiqued is exactly that sense of that that realism is quote unquote gone or the psychological psychological realism is gone or something like that. So there is that weird dividing line that somehow Tolkien cracked, and I would argue Jackson cracked as well visually, of, of making the fantasy feel real. Um, and it's something to do with the physicality, it's something to do with the narrational style. Um, the film is very weighty in its, in its and, and the, the basic narrative in its thematic substance. It's constantly alluding to what it's about more than what it... Um, what it is saying, yeah, um, and I, I, I've, you know, me and some better scholars have written on this, and it's foregrounding its potential to be read allegorically, um, and all these kind of stuffs require you to, to or, or offer you the opportunity to take the fantasy seriously, and I think that's it. Um, audiences want the opportunity to take it seriously, otherwise it becomes hyperbolic and and silly. Um, it's that it's that silliness that fantasy often suffers from. Yeah, and that, you know, going back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of fantasy that came before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a silliness is the thing. This isn't a silly... No. These aren't... I mean, there's there's some humorous parts of it, you know. Some, yeah. But it's not a... It doesn't feel silly. This is actually really serious. Well, I suppose it could. Uh, the, the, the first half an hour, the party, you know, the party. It, c- it could do that. Like, I can imagine... I can imagine it being playful and... and a, a lot more comedic, but it's it's treated very seriously and very, uh, you know, that 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 Jackson feels like this is okay. I've got to do this right, and I've got to treat this with the gravitas and the respect that the source material um, deserves. I had my I had a question about sound. I thought the sound was incredible. Like the soundtrack, the the sound gives weight in it, it gives weight to these virtual images. You know, it allows one for images not to be shown. It does the job of the image, of course, because you don't have to to see something. Um, to know it's there, you just have to hear it. But a lot of the sequences, you hear things before you see them. Footsteps, uh, the bit where Pippin, I think, drops that. I think it's the the elf that is, or the orc that's that's already orc. dead, and it's oh, orc sure. that's yeah. through the, don't know my orcs from my elves, no, um, no, no. but down the well, and then Gandalf says, we'll knock you down there, and that'll, you know, that'll rid us of this stupidity. And then the whole sequence is just played sonically. And I th- Fool of a took. Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. So I think I think you're right about the music. You know, the music is in- incredible. It's magnificent, and as you say, as soon as you hear those light motifs that Shaw created, whether it be the Fellowship, whether it be the Ring, you know what is happening. 
you you get this sense you almost feel it inside yourself how the story is progressing and i think that's incredible testament again to how the music underpins that world which is something that i when i look back on those films i think to myself i wouldn't have appreciated how integral the music would have been to the experience of that enjoyment yeah. to it um particularly even now every single year classic fm do these surveys about famous sound favorite soundtracks and lord of the rings wins it every single year mm. and you can see why can't you you can as soon as you hear certain aspects of those sa- of the sound without the context of the film you can you can see the film in your head straight away you're like i know what's happening Seems like a lot of the stuff we've been talking about has been rooted in ideas of consistency and coherency as if fantasy cinema demands us to look for those things straight away that that or invites us to think about those things straight away that there is this fan that fantasy needs rules and it needs logic because you need to know the consequences of certain actions in a world you need to know that characters aren't necessarily going to respawn in the way that or they're not impervious to things characters get hurt they bleed they die they you know these kinds of things um but it's interesting that a lot of what we've been talking about with lord of the rings and in, in terms of all its fantastic imagery its relationship to hollywood in the 2000s um its use of software digital effects uh and music we're thinking about okay so there's a sense of coherency that fantasy requires us and invites us and uh i don't know if this is right but relies on a degree of rule-based narratives where we need to and that again we're back to the we're back to the map the map sets up the at least these are the geographical rules uh, there is a sense of logic and coherency to the world yeah, you use the term sub-creation earlier yeah on, and uh, to- that's tolkien's term is, if yeah. i'm not mistaken and that's basically what he alludes to in that term is this is and he's because he's wrote he wrote fantasy theory as well as writing, yeah and a lot of what that about is the need for rules and consistency and some sort of schema by which um, his his or other readers of other sources can find some logic and coherence out of it. Otherwise, it all becomes meaningless. But then it also plays the role in the, like those kinds of rules play a role in the film itself mm. because characters pass on stories and pass on. This is what happens when you do this. You don't do this. This is the genealogy of the world. If you do this, this will happen. Uh, that the characters need to know the rules because that's where the jeopardy comes from. That's where the de- the threat of the deadline comes from. All these sorts of things. Um, there's something quite interesting about the rules that the fantasy world creates are often rules that characters themselves, there's lots of kind of surrogacy. Characters need to know the rules. The rules are explained to characters, so we're on par with the characters. The characters need to know the rules of the world in which they're exploring because otherwise... Where does their jeopardy, their their danger, their sense of threat come from? And and the final rules I'll add to it, and we've alluded to this as well in the conversation. Maybe this is a good point to sort of start to come out come out the minds of Moria out the other side, which is um this this idea of the rules of the legacy of adaptation or the rules of, of fandom. Because my understanding, I think you said this earlier, that that that, that the producers were very keen to not alienate that core sort of Tolkien audience through stylistic choices, through um, production choices, but also through things like I'm, I'm, I'm aware that um, that one point this is actually in the later films. Um, Arwen's was going to sort of take on a very different role to how she did in the novels, and it kind of it got leaked or they kind of floated it on. I think it was the One Ring dot net, yeah. which they worked reasonably closely <laughs> with. Yeah, I'd like to ask you about how closely they work with you guys actually if you knew anything about that or um with the Tolkien Society did they consult you at all or uh? um they didn't so we weren't we we weren't formal consultants but I know that some of our members and scholars were um sort of sounded out on various ideas um because 
and, and you know within the society's ranks itself we have most of the most t- known Tolkien artists, most known Tolkien scholars, mm-hmm. um, and so we are, as an organisation, what well, we should be the first point of call for anybody interested in Tolkien because we're going to know we're going to we, we'll know what's going on and we'll know who to direct people to. There certainly there are a good number of our members at, who are prominent um, who were involved in the films directly. And I think what you say about the fandom continuing the legacy, I think, is quite important. And I, I think a really good comparison to this is with Harry Potter, right? So you're talking about the rules. Yeah. And so in The Lord of the Rings, one of the main rules that is explained to you, right, is the rings themselves, right? You need to know what these rings are, how they do. And actually, you were talking about how it's explained to the characters. Well, look at Harry Potter in Harry Potter, right? Yeah. He has to have the rules of magic explained to him. And actually, the way magic works is consistent throughout all the books and all the films and the audience have to understand that. Yeah. And I think when you look at how because obviously Tolkien is no longer with us, but you look at with Harry Potter, we now have Pottermore continuing that legacy. We've got Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. You know, we can debate about how good those films are, but actually what she's doing is she's em- embedding the legacy of the Harry Potter stories in the fandom. Which obviously isn't available to Tolkien. Um, because he's no longer around but actually you see that with his son who has published so many posthumous publications you see it with how the Hobbit films came out you saw it with actually you talked about video games earlier yeah and you said you didn't know whether there's been Lord of the Rings video yeah games. there's been about 30 of them there's, 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 okay there's so you ca- you cannot move for Lord of the Rings video right games. right they are so there are so many of them and again you sort of you can see how you want to make sure that the the, the fandom own this because right, because if they if they don't, then it's 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 going to go. It's going to disappear. I mean, there's, I mean, I mean, I don't know my fan studies, but this stuff of kind of fans as authors and and um, the go-to fan scholar Henry Jenkins, their textual poaching that that fans have this have this opportunity to um, to take hold and reauthor. And, and you talked earlier about obviously the visual canon, but things like you know this is where fan fiction comes on, et cetera, et cetera. They take strands, they take lines of dialogue that might be. Uh, moments in films that might be thrown by the wayside, and then they run with them and create. They are world builders. Well, this the, is what the, fans the great do. Example of that, and I'm amazed. Like I, 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 I can't imagine watching it through your lens. But the one does not simply go into um, uh, go into Mordor, uh, yeah. walk into Mordor. Yes, the meme is you cannot help see throughout the meme culture. Right, you know, it's completely been reappropriated and and parodies and and lo- lots of parodies of the fil- film exist. Right, as I say, w- what's clever is that rarely do the parodies take away anything from it you're allowed to take the film seriously whilst also afterwards offering up a bit of fun and making fun of bits yeah, of it and things like yeah that. one of the very first um before we had such a meme culture online one of the first um satires of the lord of the rings films that i saw which you, you won't be familiar with but alex will be which is um, they're taking the hobbits to Isengard. Guard, go, 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 guard. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I ha- actually, I have heard of that, oh, which okay. says a lot about exactly what you're well, saying. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. haven't, because um, it made me. Lo- I laughed when we watched the film the first time that was mentioned, um, because I also remember watching some of the promotional or the video um, blogs that Peter Jackson and members of the cast did for the new, for the, the new, films, yeah. yeah. Uh, and one of them is is spinning. The, I think it's Orlando Bloom's character spins the camera around and says something about Isengard but it, that's what made me laugh but that's that's interesting that exactly it feeds into exactly what you're saying that I haven't seen these movies and yet th- there are bits these reappropriated moments um, 
Isengard, Isengard, guard, guard, guard. What a great place to end. That, that's, that's a perfect, you know, that's a perfect illustration of how it's sort of it seeped yeah. into popular culture. I mean, I, I, I'm doing a little bit of work now on the Frodo Lives oh, yes. um, campaign, which is this thing in the sort of um, 60s and 70s. It's sort of a sort of humorous scribble you wrote on subway walls and things as a bit of graffiti to, to sort of voice some sort of. Uh, non-particularly affiliated political youth dissonance, wasn't and it? Yeah, and the other one was Gandalf for president, wasn't it? Gandalf for president, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so uh, I think the memes are are the digital version of that these days, isn't it? Um, terrific. I think we, I think, I think we've we've talked about the film without sort of doing our usual going through the quest, yeah. which is probably a good thing, seeing as that's what the film does itself. Maybe we could wrap up by like, what? Any is there a particular favourite scene we all um, had or something like that, and then we we will um, we'll say our goodbyes. Um, I'll start seeing as I've asked the question. That means everyone else has got to rack their heads. I think um, I think for me, what struck me most was the ending this time um, and how interesting it was. I think compared to a lot of franchise endings that I've seen of you know, um, and we talked about this after it, it the the. It, it's, it ends at a very nice moment in the narrative. It's a little bit into the book of The Two Towers, I understand, but it's this odd way to set up the next film that you've got this sort of melancholic ending of Frodo going on the quest, looking completely overwhelmed, but at least having Sam with him, and this quiet little note of sort of determination as they walk down this mountainside. And um, I thought that was a really lovely way to sort of end the film on. A quite quiet little note after all the noise that has come before. Um, so there's mine. Does anyone else have a, have a nomination? Um, I'll, I mean, I'm just thinking about the... Pro- I'd totally forgotten that Mary and Pippin had been captured i've just remembered that they like are still struggling with the narrative consequences. yeah well like the, the, the idea of oh, of course those two characters i'd forgotten about um, so maybe there were too many characters or more <laughs> characters than i thought um i liked the um the bit with the cave troll but the bit afterwards on the kind of tall rocks um uh, was it durin's bane is that the name of the the bullrog? The balrog. The yeah. balrog. Okay, um, luddite. Yeah. Uh, but this idea that so so I guess the moment where um, Gandalf falls into the chasm just before that that whole set piece when they're on that jumping between those two there's something uh, there's something really stri- striking about that that there's a real sense of jeopardy and, and my hands were sweating and there was something about that sequence where they were jumping between these two um, rocks that at any moment and I thought the detail in the rocks and when it fell I wasn't looking at the characters I was looking at the rocks as it was cascading into, and I thought it was just it gave a real sense of space um, yeah it, 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 yeah I, I thought that was a really good so that whole um, Minds of Moria sequence but really the conclusion of that sequence I thought was I thought was really great um, so that's that's my one. Yeah, so I, I, have, I have two of which that is one. One of the interesting things, so we're just on this, is that in the first film, two of the Fellowship are killed off. Yes. Yes, spoiler yeah. alert. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's been out sufficiently long. Yeah, I think we're yeah. all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but you're the only one that's spoiled. Yeah. So. <laughs> and I've seen it and yeah, I'm not yeah, too yeah. sure. Yeah. But, but you think it, that in itself is quite powerful because you you always assume with these sorts of um, films, right? Yeah. That the, the main characters are going to be fine. They're going to be fine. Gandalf's going to get out of this. Actually, he doesn't. Yeah. Um, but I think there is that power. You also get that sense of history, that sense of scale with the Balrog as well. So that's one of them. But the, my other one is yeah. the Council of Elrond. Mm. And so the reason why the Council of Elrond is really important is because that's the first time you see all the different peoples of Middle-earth together. You see hobbits, you see um, wizards, elves, dwarves, and men all together. And you get that, for the first time, you get the sense of scale and history of the world. You know, that's the first time 
you really see from the perspective of the characters, obviously you get it at the start with the prologue, but from the perspective of Frodo, that this is a world with a deep history. You know, particularly when Elrond, in the run-up to it, says, I was there yep. 3,000 years ago. And, and you see him there, you're like, oh my God, you were, you were there. And I think when we're talking about that, that sense of consistency, that sense of history, I think for me, you see it all at that moment at the Council of Elrond. And then it's a fantastic conclusion to it, isn't it? When the, the nine of them come together and Elrond proclaims, you shall be the fellowship yeah. of the ring. Well, as I said, given it's a moment of, oh, given that the film is about directional movement, it's a nice moment of sort of stasis where they're, they're sitting around and, and that's, that's a moment where the film itself pauses halfway through and sort of says, right, this is, as you say, it brings all these, I don't really thought about that, it brings all these characters, you know, are, are, are sitting around the table sort of thing and they are having this conversation, but different, yeah, different types, different races of people, different... And- and they're making an actual decision. Yeah. Like they're actually having to debate this and decide what they do. Now, obviously, the narr- the full narrative is cut out from the film because it'd be far too much. But you get the gist of what, what these different people are wanting, what they're saying, and what their objectives are. And I think that's incredibly important for you sort of thinking to yourself from the perspective of Frodo. Because it's sort of filmed from the perspective of Frodo, right? That you're just this little guy and you just want to get the job done. And so that's where Frodo just stands up. Like, I'll do it. Yeah. yeah, I'll take it. I th- I think it's a great scene to pick because I think it also like it's one of those bits in the f- if you read the novel you'd be like right how are we going to do this bit the bit where they all sit around and chat for an entire chapter about the different ways we yeah. could go about this how do we do this as a film do we just cut this out and the fact that they not only don't cut it out they do it and they do it in the way that it's one of the most fondly remembered scenes of the movie yeah I, is incredible and one of the one of the cleverest parts about it which doesn't exist in the book but jackson does this beautifully is gimli what are we waiting for and smashes his axe across the ring and his axe shatters and the ring is completely untouched because it's the first time as the viewer you really comprehend the power of that ring because up until that point you sort of think why can't you just melt it actually in that in that split second of his ring of of his um axe breaking you get it you're like okay because the power of the ring has only been articulated again through sound. Yeah, it, yeah. the soundscape around the ring is incredible. When it falls yeah. onto the floor in, in um, Bag End and it <laughs> boomf onto the yeah. ground, really, really, yeah. Uh, oh, we could do a whole podcast about the sound of the ring, um, yeah. uh, um, but we can't. Um, yeah, well, terrific choices and, and terrific observations there. Um, we had better wrap up. Um, Sean, um, if people are listening and don't know about the Tolkien Society already, hopefully they've learned a little bit about it over the last um, hour or so. Um, where could they find you if they wanted to? If you've got any events coming up they could come to or anything like that, give us the sales spiel. Yeah, um, so uh, we are, our best place is obviously our website, which is tolkiensociety.org. Um, and this year is actually the Society's 50th anniversary. We were founded in 1969, so this is our 50th year. And we're holding a five-day celebration in Birmingham this August called Tolkien 2019, um, which hopefully you will come along to. Great. Terrific. I think I might be there. Uh, <laughs> it sounds great. Um, any, have you got any events planned for it or anything like that? What um, sort of? Yeah, we've got quite a lot. So we've got about 100 talks. Um, we're, do, we're hosting an art exhibition as well. It's going to be open to the public. We've got pretty much all the main Tolkien scholars and artists that are coming along. Um, we've got an orchestra that's going to be playing for us for an hour and a half. We've got a um, theatrical performance of Leaf by Niggle, which is one of Tolkien's short stories. Um, 
we've got a banquet that we're having you know we're just we're going all out because wow. this, is, this is our 50th birthday right we, we, we're not going to do it by halves no absolutely plenty of, of, of malt beer and, and red meat off the bone as Gimli exactly. would say um, terrific um, well thank you very much for joining us and if anyone wanted to, to find you would they can they find you on Twitter can they find you on Facebook they can yes yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on Twitter Sean Gunner and Tolkien Society is on Twitter at Tolkien Society and Tolkien Society on Facebook as well Great. All right, terrific. Well, that's us for another week. Um, we've been Fantasy Animation. You can find us at fantasy-animation.org as well as on Twitter, Fan Anim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research, as well as on Facebook. Um, we're, we're, we've made it thus far into the journey of Middle Earth. We'll probably have to come back. Hopefully it won't take us another 30 episodes to get to part two. Chris is dying to find out what happens anyway. I so. am. I, I, I want to, you know, because, what is it, Frodo's last time. Alex, I'm glad you're here with me. Oh, <laughs> oh how touching, how touching. I'll be your Sam. Uh, uh, thanks very much, and we'll see you next time. Bye. <laughs>